Fifty years after his first letters arrived at the offices of three Bay Area newspapers, the Zodiac remains one of the most infamous and elusive serial killers in history, and his story still has an undeniable and enduring influence on pop culture. The Zodiac inspired books, documentaries, and movies, and he has appeared as the villain in various retellings of his own crimes, including the 1971 low-budget movie The Zodiac Killer, the 2003 movie The Zodiac, and the 2007 film Zodiac, directed by David Fincher. Fictional detectives also pursued the Zodiac in episodes of television series such as Nash Bridges, Criminal Minds, and MacGyver. The Zodiac crimes also inspired three real-life copycat killers in North Carolina, New York, and Japan. In television, film, and fiction, the Zodiac has inspired imaginary villains. The 1996 made-for-cable movie The Limbic Region featured a Zodiac-inspired killer named The Scorekeeper. An episode of the supernatural detective television series Millennium featured a killer based on Zodiac named Avatar. Zodiac also inspired the killer in the new CBS series Unsub, and even the show Riverdale featured a Zodiac-like killer. Fictional stories based on the Zodiac usually included a killer using an ominous name, communicating with the media, and a connection to the San Francisco Bay Area. The central elements of the Zodiac story were established when the real killer called police by telephone, sent letters to local newspapers, and claimed his last known victim in San Francisco. 29-year-old Paul Stein was a husband, student, and cab driver until he picked up the Zodiac on the night of October 11, 1969. Stein drove his passenger to a destination in the wealthy San Francisco neighborhood of Presidio Heights, named for the large military base located north of its border. At the intersection of Washington and Cherry Streets, three young witnesses in a house directly across the street watched as the passenger handled the apparently lifeless body of the driver. Responding police discovered that Stein had been killed by a bullet fired into his skull. Investigators believed that the cab driver had been the victim of a routine robbery until the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from the Zodiac. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The writer chastised police for failing to capture him near the crime scene and ended with a threat that created shock, fear, and nightmares for police and parents. The Zodiac threatened to attack a school bus and shoot the children. Patrol cars, planes, and helicopters followed buses to and from schools and armed officers rode on board for added protection. The Zodiac then sent another letter, along with diagrams of a bomb he intended to plant along bus routes. The killer called his device the Death Machine. The Zodiac sent more letters and threats until March of 1971, 
when he apparently vanished without explanation. The Zodiac crimes had a lasting impact on the citizens of the Bay Area, and that terror inspired one of the most legendary crime films in cinema history. The 1971 action thriller Dirty Harry was an instant hit, inspired four sequels, and cemented actor Clint Eastwood's image as the all-American hero with a gun. Eastwood's vigilante cop persona was justified in balance by the extreme nature of the villain driving the story to its violent conclusion. Actor Andrew Robinson co-starred as the deranged killer who called himself Scorpio in handwritten letters sent to the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper. Chicago Sun-Times film critic Roger Ebert wrote that Scorpio is portrayed as the most vicious, perverted, warped monster we can imagine. Many moviegoers did not realize that Scorpio was based on the real-life monster known as the Zodiac Killer. The Callahan character was reportedly based in part on San Francisco Police Inspector David Toskey, the detective in charge of the Zodiac investigation. The final confrontation between Callahan and Scorpio was also inspired by the Zodiac's threat to kill children on a school bus. Zodiac warned that he would shoot out the tires and then shoot the children. Scorpio hijacked a school bus and held the children for ransom until Dirty Harry Callahan and his 44 Magnum deliver a final justice. Shortly after the release of Dirty Harry, another blockbuster film became part of the Zodiac story. Based on a best-selling book inspired by a real-life case of suspected demonic possession, The Exorcist, shattered box office records and shocked audiences around the world. Three weeks after the film premiered, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter which police and some experts believed had been written by the Zodiac after almost three years of silence. Many people described The Exorcist as one of the most terrifying films ever made, but the Zodiac apparently disagreed and described the movie as a satirical comedy. Years later, Exorcist author William Peter Blatty wrote a sequel novel titled Legion, and he also directed the film adaptation titled The Exorcist Three. This time, the story was driven by the Zodiac-inspired killer named Gemini, who taunted police and letters sent to newspapers and carved astrological signs into the flesh of his victims. The Zodiac did not write to comment on Blatty's sequel, but his influence on pop culture was undeniable. The ghost of the Zodiac still haunts the world decades after he disappeared, and his legacy continues to inspire Hollywood horror. What scares me about the Zodiac is I think it was the first time I was made aware that there were people who killed people dispassionately, like for fun. I saw and think The Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. Signed, yours truly.
wrong with me? This is Zodiac A to Z. Writer and producer David Icke returns for an extended conversation about the Zodiac's influence on pop culture, including the classic crime movie Dirty Harry and the legendary film The Exorcist in Part 2 of Hollywood Horror. So we're back. Are you ready, Dave? Yes, sir. Okay. When you and I took the trip to San Francisco in 2010... We visited a Zodiac site, the scene of the cab driver murder in San Francisco. I recorded a video that day depicting the killer's escape route. And you were with me. Of course, I made you stand behind me so you wouldn't show up on the camera. We have a clip from that day in which we discuss the so-called suspect, Michael O'Hare. You managed to work in a reference to the suspected Zodiac communication known as the Peek Through the Pines card. And as you were known to do, you also quote a line from the film Jaws. Mike, you gotta tell me where we're walking now. We're walking the path that he took when he left. So the witnesses said that he didn't run away, he just walked slowly. And about two minutes later, the cops saw him down here. So how long do you think it's been since we left there? 79 seconds, sir. How do you know that? I don't. So you just make shit up then, yeah. huh? All right. You'll fit in perfectly in this case. <laughs> They're all going to die. See the car parked down there? Yeah. That's the most logical thing he could have done. But a lot of people think he ran into there. The Presidio. Yes, see those buildings down there? That's Letterman General Hospital. Donna Lass, the nurse who disappeared in Lake Tahoe, worked there. All right, so we're going to walk down there. Those aren't pine trees. I know, I was trying to make a reference to the Boise Cascade Development Project. I'm impressed that you actually know that. Thank you, Michael. See? Tough you're talking about now, do you? Did I tell you that Michael O'Hare wrote an article for Washington Monthly about being a Zodiac suspect? He did? Yeah. What did he say? It was titled, How a Conspiracy Theorist Almost Ruined My Life, or something like that. And it talks about how he got all those weird postcards from Penn over the years. Yeah. How long ago? Uh, I don't know, about four or five months ago. Oh, you're kidding. According to the witnesses, the Zodiac got out of the cab and walked north on Cherry Street and then continued probably across Jackson and then further east on Jackson Street and then at some point disappeared. He was seen by police officers near the intersection of Jackson and Maple Street. But after that, we don't really know what happened to him. And there was a theory that he had escaped into the Presidio, the grounds of the large military base, which are located just north of the crime scene in San Francisco. So you and I took that walk. You know, you have to jump over a wall if you're trying to get out of the neighborhood and into the Presidio. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people who read about it understand what it's like in that neighborhood 
and what the geography of it is. So taking that tour was an interesting thing for both of us. I had been there many times before, but I believe that was the second time you had been there, I think. It was the only time I'd been there with you, so I, you know, you gave it a lot more context. I'd been to the intersection, but the walk tracing his likely path following the murder was fascinating because, you know, that remains for anybody familiar with the case, one of the most maddening moments of the whole thing is the near miss with the cop uh, the the fact that there were eyewitnesses to the immediate aftermath of the murder with the kids from a upstairs window across the street you know the fact that anyone could have seen him or stopped him. just the fact that he was walking around in public is yeah. is you know in its own way maddening more maddening than him being cocooned in the protection of a car driving down some dark freeway where no one knows who he is and he can be anonymous. This is the individual out there for all intents and purposes vulnerable. And oh yeah, he was in a residential neighborhood, an upscale yeah. residential neighborhood in San Francisco, which was a drastic departure from these isolated like lover's lane spots or recreation areas where he was committing these crimes. So he, for some reason, he chose this upscale neighborhood and what you were talking about, which is the maddening part, according to the available information, when the witnesses called the police to describe the killer, there was some sort of mix-up. Now, maybe they were saying that the killer's clothing was black or something, and the dispatcher misheard that. But for whatever reason, the broadcast described the killer as a black male. So the two police officers who were responding to the scene, they were driving west on Jackson Street. They saw what most people believe was the killer walking down the street, but noted that he was a white man. And according to the officers, they kept on driving. Now, later on, the Zodiac sent a letter where he claimed that he had been stopped by two police officers after he left the scene and that the police officers asked him if he saw anybody acting suspicious or strange or something. And the Zodiac claimed that he said, oh, yeah, I saw a guy waving a gun running down the street and he directed them off in that direction. Now, of course, the surviving police officer, Don Falk, denies that that ever happened. His partner, Eric Zelms, was killed in the line of duty shortly after that. But it created this chaos, not only because the killer escaped, but because the police had botched it by getting the description wrong. Now, if, if things played out the way that the officer said, there was nothing that he could have done. You know, he was told that the killer was a black man. So he was looking for a black man. When he saw a white man, he ignored him and kept going. But it's maddening to think that we might not be sitting here talking about this right now if yeah. they had just said it was a white man and the officer saw him and stopped him. Because according to the responding police officer, Armand Pellicetti, who saw the victim and the blood inside the cab, he believed that the killer would have some blood on him at the time. And that officer, Don Falk, who was accused of stopping the Zodiac, that Falk would have noticed that blood on that person. So it's terrifying to think that not only did the Zodiac take this incredible risk of going into a residential neighborhood and committing a crime against somebody who, unlike the other victims, was just doing his job, just yeah. a cab driver, but it's even more terrifying to think that it's such a simple mistake could allow him to escape justice, and here we are 50 years later. But when you put it that way, it certainly does, for me anyway, heighten the factor that I don't think gets talked about that much, which is that if you were the Zodiac and part of your personality, your imprimatur is to escalate, right? At first, it's kind of anonymously shooting people. 
then it, it becomes a much more intimate murder, complete with Halloween costume. And then it's threatening school buses and interfacing with the media and with the police. It stands to reason in following that simple direction on a grid that the next logical step would be to create panic in the very places where people tend to feel safest. Yeah. And so what one might then say, well, then naturally he would go to an upscale neighborhood and naturally it would be worth the risk because if he can frighten these folks, if he can if make people who make the money and who have the status afraid, then he's achieved a different kind of power. You know, I, that starts to create uh, a, a little bit more of a rationale for me that I just haven't really thought that much of before. It was more to send a signal to the neighborhood than mm-hmm. to that particular guy. Uh, you know, whereas, whereas maybe there was some significance to the youth of the other victims and the fact that they represented, you know, obviously, if you want to hurt a society the worse, you're going to attack their young. That's, that's mm-hmm. what yeah. these people seem to understand. So that's an interesting shift in his dynamic. Again, I go back to um, what, what we were talking about, the locations. You know, it does make it come alive, and it does, even though that city has changed so much, once again, the breadth of his movement and the ground that he covered is it's just it's somehow there's something about when you're reading about it these places all kind of blend together you don't really mm-hmm. know you know where uh, lake Berryessa is in relationship to the golden state bridge in relationship to blue rock springs and and the truth is they're all you know they cover vast vast distances it's it's part of what makes them terrifying and i i wonder if it's why with zodiac because you've mentioned this a number of times, you know, that there are crazier killers in the annals of American crime. There are certainly killers with a far higher body count. There are killers with much more vicious in their methods. And yet, you know, this guy, of course, he wasn't caught. So the boogeyman thing gets amplified and and, and compounded in its amplification over the years. And it's true. I mean, there are times I'll catch a piece on Richard Speck or on the Gainesville Ripper, and I'll think, why doesn't Butterfield ever talk about this motherfucker? Jesus Christ, <laughs> so much worse. Why aren't we talking about yeah. that guy? There's and, many worse killers than yeah. Zodiac. It and, just and, he's so confounding and baffling. Yeah, there's something about the, obviously the fact that he's not caught, but it, it goes beyond that. It goes to the, again, the merriment, the, the kind of thrill aspect of it, the contrast, I guess, in emotion and uh, feeling that you're at once mortified, horrified by this unspeakable crime. and the evidence of it is being delivered to you by this kind of happy gram jokester who's Mm -hmm. sending you riddles and kind of poking casual fun at things and griping about coverage like he's a you know over the hill sitcom star yeah and and it's just you know the bizarro factor is just hard to beat with zodiac he attacked three couples and a cab driver that alone is enough to be baffling to make you go what but you know what is that there's no pattern there People want patterns. They want to recognize something right away, not just because it's easier to understand, because it's also easier to deflect it, to say, well, I'm not one of those people and it won't happen to me. But when you select a guy who's just driving a cab, some poor guy who just doing his job and he sees somebody on the street hailing a cab and the guy gets in, he thinks, you know, I'm taking him where he wants to go and then I'll move on to the next thing. You know, the driver has a life. He has plans. He has things he wants to do. And here's this person who gets into his cab knowing exactly what he's going to do and maybe engaging in small talk and chatting with him, you know, like you would. 
the whole time, knowing I've got a gun in my jacket here and I'm going to pull it out at a certain point and kill you. That just adds a level of terror that you don't see in a lot of cases because no matter how much you wrap your head around the idea, well, he's like some kind of domestic terrorist and he's doing this to the shock value, he still just selected some random person. I've often wondered about this as we talked about it when we went there. Unless you have your own car when you come to visit San Francisco, you're going to have to take a cab. Mm-hmm. You get in the cab and you say, take me to Washington and Cherry Street. This is what the Zodiac did. Right, right. He sat here and watched this guy drive him there the whole time, knowing what he's going to do. Yeah. And that is one of the things that makes Zodiac much more terrifying to me than a lot of these other killers who may be more prolific. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly, instead of holding road races with their motorcycles, seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. In one of the letters where the Zodiac was mocking the police for failing to capture him that night, he indicated that he was watching the search. And he also, in a letter, said that the police could have caught him if they searched the park properly, the park being the grounds of the Presidio. So there's a lot of speculation that he was either hiding in the area or that he was in a residence. You know, if he knew somebody or had a residence there, he could have been sitting inside looking out the window watching it. One of the other theories, which is something that we talked about when we were there at the crime scene and we took that walk along the suspected escape route of the killer, if you walk north on Cherry Street to Jackson Street, and then you make a right and you continue east on Jackson Street. If you get to Maple Street, Maple Street ends because there's a barrier and a drop down with a brick wall, which is in between the neighborhood and the Presidio. There's an area which is sort of a car park, and you and I walk down there. As you mentioned before, this is different from the other crimes. In the other crimes, the Zodiac showed up in a vehicle and carried out an act and drove away. In this instance, he got into the victim's vehicle, and the victim transported them to the crime scene. And then he got out of the vehicle and escaped on foot. Mm-hmm. So and unless you believe that he just hailed a cab to some random neighborhood and then carried out a crime of that magnitude and escaped on foot without a plan, it's easy to believe that he may have driven to that neighborhood first and parked his car along that car park Mm. and then either walked, which is a pretty long walk. I've done that walk and it's not fun. Or he took a bus or took a cab back to the area where the Zodiac was suspected to have hailed the cab, which is near the intersection of Mason and Geary in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So if he did that, he gets back down into that area. He sees a cab. He hails the cab, says, take me to this place, knowing that he has an escape vehicle parked and ready to go. And then if that is what he did, he got in his car and he was gone before the police started searching the neighborhood. And he may have just been saying those things. When you talk about him watching from the Presidio or watching from some enclave where he felt safe, whether a home or someone else's residence, here's what that reminds me of. Because in the movie Dirty Harry, I don't know anything about uh, the, the, the writing of that film. It is a hallmark of my young life. It is probably, if I had to isolate a single reason why I was 
compelled to go into show business. It was through the trauma suffered at a uh, drive-in <laughs> showing of Dirty Harry and Magnum Force double feature. One of the things I don't know about that movie is is anything about how it was written and adapted. So I know it was written by a team. I don't know if they read the papers and went, holy shit, let's write a movie about that. And that was the end of that. Or if they got the police reports and, you know, but but if it were the, let's say for the sake of discussion, it were the latter, let's say they really did their homework. And when it comes to things like the, you know, the school bus incident and a lot of the other details, it seems like they at least did a little homework. So who knows? Maybe they did a lot of research. They might know the content of that letter that you just quoted, where the Zodiac mm-hmm. is talking about watching the, the, the police, you know, race each other. And when you watch the movie, there's a very deliberate, very specific sequence in which the Scorpio killer, not coincidentally, is being hunted by Dirty Harry, the cop, and he is watching the search for him through some kind of private hiding place where he can see them, but they can't see him. And, and they happen to be at a football stadium. Kizar Stadium. Kizar Stadium, right, exactly, where the Niners used to play. And so it seems so kind of coincidentally of that uh, part of the letter that you were referring to, it makes me wonder if they didn't read the same thing and, and, and think to themselves, oh, gee, wouldn't it be cool if he were watching them? The reason I bring it up is because in that movie, he lived there. And so the theory that the Zodiac was able to watch them hunt for him from where he lived could have been a conclusion the writers of the film also drew. I don't know how much of it was planned, but I do know that there are quite a few moments in the movie. There's the scene where they're in the car looking for him and they kind of get lost. You know, that's the famous get out of the way, hammerhead. Hammerhead, yeah. Yeah, where they think, well, that's him and they get a glimpse, you know, and then they lose track of him. Obviously, there's the direct parallels, the Scorpio name. And in the beginning, there's the classic scene where the mayor, played by John Vernon, is reading the Scorpio letter. And the handwriting is remarkably similar. Sure. To yeah. Yeah. And then there's the threats. And of course, there's a scene at the end where the killer takes control of a school bus full of children, which yeah. is similar to the Zodiac's threat to attack school children. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. The film was written by several different individuals over a period of time who each put their own little pieces into it. So I don't know exactly how much, for instance, John Milius, the famous screenwriter, I don't know how much he had to do with taking those Zodiac elements, those elements are certainly there in the film, but the film was originally written with Frank Sinatra in mind. Yeah, no, no, I I know. He reportedly backed out of that. And then, of course, there's also the incredibly bizarre casting that originally the Scorpio killer was going to be played by the legendary actor and veteran Audie Murphy. I'm a big fan of Audie Murphy. I used to watch Whispering Smith and I've seen his movies. Of course, he was a famous war hero who was awarded for his heroism over and over again and even played himself in the movie. When I heard that the first time that Audie Murphy was <laughs> their original choice, I was like, I don't know that I would have liked that better, but I sure would have liked to have seen that movie. 
especially <laughs> if it was Frank Sinatra and Audie Murphy together. But I guess Audie Murphy was killed shortly after he was attached to that project. And of course, they had to look for a different actor. I was mentioning this very kind of life-changing trauma that occurred when I saw Dirty Harry the first time. And the trauma basically manifested itself in my need to, at that moment, understand that there was a difference between real life and these flickering images on a screen. And it, it was like, so my diamond bullet in terms of like, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. It was, oh, uh, there are people who make these things. And in some, I think, twisted way, part of my career mission was to find ways to traumatize other people <laughs> and traumatize in so many episodes of television shows that I've made, you can find these like direct visual quotes of shots from the movie, dirty Harry, mm -hmm. where I've literally had like the movie loaded up on my laptop on the set. And I'm instructing the director to line up the image exactly with the mm -hmm. same lens and the same distance and the same angle in order to kind of exercise this demon. You mentioned Andy Robinson in terms of the, the events that sent me into my current career. I have this kind of unnaturally uh, specific recall for, uh, one moment of which was the scene in Dirty Harry where Eastwood plunges the switchblade into the Scorpio killer's leg while uh, the killer's about to shoot him at the foot of the giant cross in the hills of San Francisco. And the killer screams this blood-curdling shriek oh God, yeah. and rolls down the hill. That was when I lost it. It just adds this other surreal dimension to it. Totally, totally. Yeah. No, in fact, one of the, my probably my favorite shot of the movie, which I sort of stole for an episode of Battlestar Galactica, is the uh, helicopter shot pullback from the end of that sequence when Eastwood is finally caught up with him at Kizar Stadium and shoots him in the leg and, and then tells his partner to hit the lights and these lights all eerily go on. And suddenly it's like broad daylight and you got this bleeding killer shrieking and it's all shot in a wide angle lens and Eastwood is walking towards him with this menace and he's just basically going to step on his just shot up leg to torture him into a confession. And in order to underscore the madness of everything, the great, great director, Don Siegel, pulls back from the scene in, the, in what looks like a crane shot, but it keeps going and going and going. And if you're watching closely, you can see the, all their, their clothes and hair are flapping because it's a helicopter. And you realize it's actually going to keep pulling back and back and back and back, making the whole thing seem almost as if he's you know commenting on the banality of this tiny example of the kind of crime that's pocking the city everywhere. Mm. And it's just glorious and brilliant and terrifying. And I had a director attempt a similar shot, but only with a crane. So starting really, really tight and then pulling back and kind of trying to make it feel like it was the same sort of thing, not quite getting there. You know, that's a famous shot. And I'm sure you're not the only person who's ever tried to recreate that moment. But I have wondered sometimes if, just as you were saying, you tried to create a moment from a director who inspired you. I've wondered sometimes if Don Siegel wasn't inspired by another director for that scene, because I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Experiment in Terror, which stars Ross Martin and Glenn Ford, directed by Blake Edwards, the guy responsible for all the Pink Panther movies. And I wonder sometimes if the Zodiac wasn't inspired by this as well, because it's a story 
about Ross Martin, who is this asthmatic lunatic who starts to terrorize this young woman by telephone and an FBI agent, Glenn Ford, becomes involved and it becomes a sort of cat and mouse game. And Ross Martin, for listeners who aren't familiar, some may recognize him as one half of the duo on the old television show Wild Wild West, which I was infatuated with when I was a little kid. I used to watch it every day after school. And then I watched Experiment in Terror, where Ross Martin is nothing like his lovable and likable <laughs> character on Wild Wild West. He was truly terrifying in a way that I had never really experienced with another actor before, except maybe Andy Robinson. But the film's climax takes place. I'm not sure where it is, but it's a stadium in San Francisco. The whole story takes place in the Bay Area. And at the end of the film, Ross Martin's character is trying to pull off some sort of scheme and doesn't know that Glenn Ford and the rest of the FBI agents are stalking him. They chase him out onto the field, and inevitably there's a helicopter. There's dust flying everywhere, and they shoot Ross Martin, and he's laying there with this horrified look on his face, and the camera starts pulling away, and it's a helicopter shot. And it just uh, yeah, it's certainly, who knows what may have inspired Siegel. It's certainly not the only time a shot like that has oh, been no. used. I think what makes that particular shot unique is the, the Bay Area fog almost looks, I mean, if, if it wasn't there and there was CG back then, yeah. which there wasn't, you would have added it in. And the so, Lalo Schifrin music. The Lalo Schifrin score, I was just going to say. and But also the use of sound in that shot where he slowly drowns out the screams of the killer and in favor of this sort of warped, very kind of disturbing music cue, this, this mm -hmm. music cue and all sound kind of vanishes and you're just left with that music. But Annie Robinson, just to make the point about, I guess it was only a couple of years ago, I just looked it up. I saw that he was a teacher, a professor at USC. I decided I'd write him an email. And I basically said what I just said on this podcast about how I was sort of traumatized into show business <laughs> by his performance. So he, and he wrote me back. He said, Dear David, I'm afraid that I may have traumatized a few other people as well. And I've even run into some who let me know. One woman told me that she had horrendous dreams for a while that she believed were provoked by the character. What can I say? But I do appreciate your story. The fact that you took action and found a career is something I will remember. In a sense, I had the same journey with Scorpio. I was traumatized by the reaction of so many people in and out of the business who believed that I was a truly unhinged actor that Don Siegel had found in New York. That severely limited my film prospects, but as I recovered, I discovered how we truly can and must co-create our lives, especially when facing stiff resistance to what we think we want, which is about as wise a statement as I've heard anyone in this business make. Thanks oh, yeah. so much for your note. I wish you and yours a happy new year and continued success, Andy. So, like, that's for the fucking tombstone. I mean, <laughs> you know, what a great guy. Uh, the irony about him, though, is that for people our age, that is how he was introduced to the world. For and sure. for years, that stigma hurt him in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, when he was in other fantastic movies like Charlie Varick with Walter Matthau, which is another yeah. Don Siegel. But movie. by the way, I, I can't watch it because it's just like the Scorpio killer pretending yeah. he's not a killer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like that look in his eye, you know, you just can't. Well, and the and then, voice, too. The voice yeah, and the voice. Yeah. But it took me a long time to get to the point where I could view him as an actor because the part of Scorpio 
that's why I said it was hard to imagine Audie Murphy playing that part because Audie Murphy was like such a squeaky clean guy. And when you see Andy Robinson playing that part, you can't imagine anyone else doing it. It's stunning. It's a breakthrough performance. He's just amazing. But it's a total necessity because in order for Dirty Harry to be the extreme that he is, I think it was Roger Ebert who said that Dirty Harry was an example of fascism. And in order for Dirty Harry to be this extreme character who operates outside the law, who abandons the law, there's scenes in the movie where people are telling him, you know, we can't use this evidence because you didn't get it properly. The big reason that the audience accepts when Dirty Harry takes the law into his own hands, he is balanced by this absolutely deranged lunatic. And as you pointed out earlier, that sentiment wasn't shared by a lot of critics at that very tense political point in time. There was such an, uh, you know, anti-fascist and many communities, anti-cop movement at that time that it was just this kind of blatant setup for attack. And I think it was deliberate in a lot of ways. They knew it was going to be controversial in that respect. But it also answered to a lot of people's, in a lot of the same ways that the Nixon campaign was able to take advantage of it a year later, the so-called silent majority, you know, the people who weren't hippies, they weren't marching in the streets against the police. They didn't want to upend society. They were afraid of hippies. And you show them a long-haired hippie type who shoots people for fun and the cop that kills him in spite of the system that wants to protect his rights, they're going to show up. (laughs) Those folks are going to come. Well, it fed into the whole idea that served Death Wish and all these other movies that came out, this idea of society being out of control and one man can make a difference. And that's why it's funny. If you remember in the original trailer, the line is something to the effect... uh, there's Dirty Harry and a killer, and Harry's the one with the badge. You know, <laughs> And John Milius said it was his idea to make a movie where the killer and the cop are the same. The oh only difference God. between them is that one of them is on this side of the line. Now, refresh and, me. Did, did Milius, uh, I, I know he wrote Magnum Force, right? Yeah. You mentioned the first Dirty Harry. Are you sure he w- had a role in that as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, oh, he uh, did. Okay. Let me, let me bring up the quote here set it aside so we could talk about it that's interesting Um, when you consider how i mean not to change the subject when you consider what a what an almost equally vital role the movie jaws played in my young life oh yeah yeah he's all over milius has his fingerprints all over that too that's pretty interesting now for listeners who aren't familiar john milius was a prolific screenwriter who was also involved in the original conan the barbarian film and who worked on a lot of projects and infused all of them with his own brand of what he described himself as right-wing extremism. And he wrote one draft of the screenplay for Dirty Harry. I believe there's four people who are listed in the credits. Some of what he put in the script stuck through the final versions. According to Milius, he described his contribution to the film as, quote, a lot of guns. And the attitude of Dirty Harry being a cop who was ruthless I think it's fairly obvious if you look at the rest of my work, what parts are mine. The cop, (laughs) yeah, he says, the cop being the same as the killer, except he has a badge. Now, John Milius also later claimed that the film Dirty Harry was more important than The Godfather. Wow. So, but Milius infused Dirty Harry with what became the essential image of Dirty Harry, which is the vigilante cop who serves justice at the end of a gun. Right. He introduced that. 
And the reason that I think that the audience was ready to accept it was the same kind of reason they were ready to see Charles Bronson blowing away muggers in New York, because there was this notion that the world was out of control and things like Zodiac and the Manson family and all of that contributed. Dirty Harry was originally set in Seattle. And when they changed it to San Francisco is when they started introducing some of these parallels to Zodiac, whether they were intentional or just sort of organic afterthoughts that bled into their thinking about this kind of character from what they were seeing in the news. You, you can't have a Dirty Harry without that kind of Scorpio. No, there, there, there's no quote, which is why, despite being a lefty commie from L.A., I can still relate to this so-called reactionary fascist. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, and because... I love watching Charles Bronson blow away muggers, although right. I don't agree with it at all. No, so. of course not, because it does it does fulfill a certain component, one of which is, gee, what if someone just came along and blew them all away? Yeah. Know? I think that's human nature to to yearn for that and to kind of fantasize about it. But certainly in practice, it has not shown itself to be an effective use of, of uh, or an effective way to run a society. What appeals to people about it the most, I think the same thing with Charles Bronson in the Death Wish movies, is that all these horrific problems in life that are going on all around us, people being raped and murdered and robbed, and there's this notion about, you know, it's the cops versus the world and cop killers are out there. Dirty Harry, the, I think the the entirety of why he is popular and why characters like Paul Kersey and the Death Wish movies are popular can be summed up in that one line that Clint Eastwood delivers in the film where they're sitting around. I think it's the scene where they're talking about how he violated the guy's rights. And Clint Eastwood says, when are you going to stop messing around with this guy? <laughs> And one of the things that I think is so enduring about it is that, like Paul Kersey's character in the Death Wish movies, you know, there are five Death Wish movies and I don't know what, five Dirty Harry movies. The character gets progressively sillier and sillier as the movies go on until it reaches the point where he's a caricature of who he was in the first film because the threat becomes less and less viable the more powerful the hero becomes. At a certain point, you're at sudden impact where Dirty Harry's in a diner with like, what, five armed guys. Right. And he's got his hand in his jacket because he knows the script says they're all going to wait and not shoot him while he's <laughs> delivering his one liner where he's all like, you know, I, I don't think we agree with that. And they're like, who's we? And he's like me, Smith and Wesson or whatever his line is. One of the things that I think we should talk a little bit about real quick is that the influence of Zodiac on the film is undeniable. I think it's at the very beginning of the film where they show the memorial to the San Francisco police officers who've died in the line of duty. And on that list is Eric Zelms, one of the police officers who either saw or stopped the Zodiac on the night of his last known murder in San Francisco. You and I took a trip to the San Francisco Police Department and we viewed that memorial. We were talking about it in the context of all that chaos that was going on in the 60s. And thinking about how the number of police officers who were killed in the line of duty, you tend to think that it might have been more at that time. But when we were actually looking at the numbers, it was pretty interesting. The thing that I noticed when we were here was that far more of them died in the 20s and 30s than ever died during like the so-called high crime rate years. Or, or during the chaos of the 60s. Nine in the 50s. 
12 in the 70s. Okay, so the 70s got close to the 20s. Three in 2006 alone, Jesus. Yeah, three in 71. Well, the way that Eric Zelms died was just the most pointless thing you could imagine. End of their shift, and he and his partner were having dinner in a restaurant, and some customers ran in and said somebody was robbing the pawn shop next door. And Eric Zelms ran next door. The guys were stealing a ring. He confronted them, they overtook him, they took his gun away from him, and shot him with it. They both got out of prison. It's such an eerie beginning. Uh, again, you know, Don Siegel is such a master, but I wonder if it was to diffuse sort of the exploitive nature of what of the movie he knew was about to come, or if in some way he or Eastwood felt a genuine sense of you know obligation to acknowledge not just San Francisco police in particular, but just big city cops in general mm-hmm. who are facing this kind of crime in the street. I don't know. I, I remember the first time I saw it or... The first time I remember seeing it without, you know, being traumatized, feeling kind of moved by that. Like it was yeah. kind of, it was kind of effective. I can't speak for them, but I think one of the reasons it was there, they talk about how Dirty Harry lost his wife mm-hmm. and yeah. they show his partner having to deal with the consequences of being shot and about how he lost previous partners. There's a scene in that. And I think in every one of the Dirty Harry movies where he talks about how a partner of his had been murdered. I think they're trying to really show you at the beginning of the film that this is an extremely dangerous world. Look at all these officers who've lost their lives. Right, right. Dirty Harry could just be one of them. Right. I think that that whole feeling that you get from the beginning of the film sets up the environment to come. And I also think the way that police officers are portrayed in that film, which may be part of the John Milius message in the end, you know, they're the last line between you and Scorpio. Mm-hmm. That, that's all that stands between you and some lunatic like that. So Dirty Harry goes to these extremes because we can't, we won't. Somebody has to do it. And that's why I love that line. When are you going to stop messing around with this guy? Because what he's essentially saying is, why don't we just kill him? Right. Well, and that is the simplest solution. And, and of course, Dirty Harry delivers justice to Scorpio in a way that Zodiac never experienced. Zodiac's still free. We have no idea. The, the other thing we'll never get, or certainly it's looking less and less likely with each passing year we'll never get, is any kind of explanation or new context or just information identifying Zodiac after he's dead, even though that will in and of itself represent a certain achievement, uh, won't provide. You yeah. know, we, we may be able to find relatives or offspring or whatever else and answer a few more questions or learn a little bit more, but basically we we kind of know what we're ever going to know about Zodiac short of finding him alive and interrogatable. And if he'll talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Gary Ridgway and Dennis Rader, they love to talk, but there's other people like the Golden State Killer. Don't say a word. Who was caught. Yeah. He's not going to help you out at all. Right. The, the fact that he, he'll have that final laugh is maddening. You know, it's just yeah. so frustrating because you, you want, you, if nothing else, even if he's unable to be incarcerated, you just want the opportunity to, you know, ask a few questions and, and resolve a few of these things. We've been talking about Zodiac since we were in high school. And I never, ever imagined that we would be sitting here on the 50th <laughs> anniversary 
But you thought never, he would have been caught by now or identified at least. By yeah, now. I thought somewhere down the line something would happen. But it really is depressing when you stop to think about the fact that 50 years later, Manson and all those people, they were arrested. They're put away. That chapter is kind of over. We can kind of file that away. But with Zodiac, like what you were saying is we're not going to get any answers. We're just stuck with this story the way it is. And this story of Zodiac in this time of chaos. Yeah, yeah, it's really terrifying. In 1974, the San Francisco Chronicle received a series of suspected Zodiac letters, although none of them used the name Zodiac. And one of them referred to the popular demonic possession film of the time, The Exorcist. The Zodiac referred to this film as a satirical comedy. And I've often wondered what exactly about that film did he find so humorous when so many other people are terrified of it. People had heart attacks in the theaters and ran out. So I've wondered why the Zodiac referred to it as a satirical comedy. And was he sort of commenting on the hysteria around the film as if he was mocking everybody for being afraid of something so fictional when there were real things to be afraid of like himself? I saw and think The Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. Signed, yours truly. He plunged himself into the billowy wave, and an echo arose from the suicide's grave. Tit Willow. Tit Willow, Tit Willow. P.S. If I do not see this note in your paper, I will do something nasty, which you know I'm capable of doing. Me, 37, S.F.P.D. 0. For a lot of people, The Exorcist is a pretty pivotal moment in their lives. They can remember what it was like to be scared like that. One of my most traumatic experiences involving The Exorcist was when I went from thinking it was a really scary movie to being told it was a true story, which only, to my mind, meant it could happen to me. And that was uh, in a discussion with my stepfather in 1980, who was a Catholic attending a Jesuit university or a Jesuit law school, I think. And he, he was an attorney. And so he was telling this story about he and his roommate went to see The Exorcist when it came out. Well, he sort of had the worst of all worlds because he saw it in the theater, not knowing that during the two hours he was in the theater, there had been a windstorm and he had left his windows open in his apartment. So he goes to see The Exorcist as a practicing Catholic. So you're talking, you know, a true believer in the specific category in which you would be most liable to be terrified and shocked and walks in the door of his apartment and there's shit strewn everywhere. Just like when the girl's you know, stabbing herself with a crucifix. And he literally yeah. thought, you know, he was being punished for going to see the movie. And, you know, like then he was, you know, in law school. I mean, he wasn't, mm -hmm. you know some guy off the turnip truck he was in a you know a smart normal guy but it just he said he was up all night drinking scotch he made some friend of his come over <laughs> <laughs>
Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. The Exorcist is coming to network television for the first time. Regan McNeil, a normal, healthy 12-year-old, is changing into something even her mother won't recognize. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. The Exorcist is a film dealing with the supernatural. Parental discretion is advised. I saw the television broadcast of The Exorcist when I was probably 10 on CBS and loved it, but then discovered it was based on a true story and developed this sort of obsessive phobic relationship with it where I wanted to learn everything about it, and yet I couldn't sleep at night because of it. It was very strange, especially for someone at that age. But I was finally cured of that ailment and thought I was over it, and I was watching a documentary on the Zodiac Killer, probably at age 11, so we're talking 79 or 80. We were over at Vic's condo, Mike. We were watching this Zodiac documentary, and they got to the part where... This actor read the voiceover of the, the letter where the Zodiac talks about how he thought The Exorcist was the best satirical comedy he had ever seen. Now, I know Eleven is a little old to cry from a documentary, but I literally remember getting so stressed out and worked up that my mom had to shut off the television because it had reawakened this phobia that I thought I'd kind of conquered about demonic possession and the exorcist and the religiosity associated with it and all the ways in which that movie is designed to work to terrify you and the reason why little children aren't supposed to see it, especially mm. little, little kids that go to church. And so I think it fused this relationship with the Zodiac Killer in particular, because I associated it with this phobia that I had spent a good amount of time kind of obsessing over. And so I think I shifted that obsession from The Exorcist to Zodiac, but it remains a really significant part of the Zodiac story for me because I had this deep relationship with that movie and then with a lot of other aspects of it. I wrote a piece about it for the Los Angeles Times years ago about a lot of what we're talking about now. Uh, that a lot of people found amusing at my expense. And, you know, I've ripped off shots from it in television shows I've done. I've ripped off sound design. I've alluded to it, referenced it, paid homage to it, you name it. The only thing I haven't found a way to do quite yet, although I've gotten uh, his autograph and, and shook his hand and met him in person, is uh, a lunch with Billy Friedkin. That would be, and I could probably do it. It's not like the guy's that busy. I'm sure if I just called his agent and said, I'm his biggest fan and I want to have a meeting and I have a few credits, so I'm not an axe murderer, please let me buy you lunch. He'd probably do it. But I want to and I don't want to because you're not supposed to meet your heroes. So maybe it's best I don't. But anyway, yeah, long relationship with The Exorcist and deep connection with the Zodiac case through The Exorcist for me. Well, anybody who knows you knows that you've always been obsessed with The Exorcist and Dirty Harry, especially The Exorcist. But I'm curious, the timing of you seeing that documentary indicates that you may have been watching the, I think it was made for HBO, the documentary short called Zodiac Sign of Death. Well, you know, I'm 
so pleasantly shocked that you're blurting that out because the only thing I didn't say just now is, gee, I wonder if you would have any idea what I was watching, but I thought, no, that's ridiculous. You're absolutely right. And the reason I know that is because (laughs) one of the reasons why we all went over to Vicks that weekend is because he had this new thing called HBO. Mm -hmm. And so I know we were watching HBO and I know it was around 1980 an easy cross-reference would get you to that title. I'm dying to watch it again. I want to relive my trauma. If that is the show in question, I think it was made for the HBO documentary series America Undercover. I remember that, yeah. The series they had on there. And if it is the documentary that you're talking about, that video is available on my YouTube page. Wow. ZFAX is the name of the channel on YouTube, and it's called Zodiac Sign of Death. And as far as I know, that is the oldest documentary that we have access to at this time. Isn't that something that I watched it in real time when it was just on back then? Mm-hmm. Long before you and I would meet? Oh, yeah. They have an actor who reads the Zodiac letters, and he sounds very much like the voice of Hal in 2001. Oh, is that right? You know, <laughs> very, very <laughs> odd. It's almost like a whispery kind of voice. Mike, real quick, called what? Zodiac what? Zodiac Sign of Death. Sign of Death. The documentary is actually a short. It's only about 10 minutes long. I found it. Okay, Zodiac Sign of Death. I'm on your channel. It is at 540. I saw him think The Exorcist was the biggest satirical comedy I've ever seen. The unsigned note ends with a mysterious quotation from a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta hinting at suicide and a final threat. If I don't see this note in your paper, I'll do something nasty. Can't believe that. For the first time since I was 10, I heard that actor read that line again. Thank you. (laughs) So you've been (laughs) re-traumatized. Yeah, thanks a lot. Here's what I distinctly remember, Mike. I heard that line. I remember hearing that and starting to like cry and, and freak out. It's interesting that you said that you wanted to meet William Friedkin, the director. You said that in your theorized attempt to get him to meet with you, that you would say you weren't an axe murderer. And (laughs) I think it's worth pointing out that being an axe murderer might make it easier for you to meet William Friedkin. Very Because when he made The Exorcist, there's a famous scene in the film where the little girl who is supposedly possessed, Reagan, is undergoing a medical procedure. And I cannot remember the name of that procedure, but you, of course, know what scene I'm talking about. Well, uh, yeah. Is it the spinal tap she goes in I, for? Or? Well, they later in the movie, they referred to another spinal, and her mom, Chris McNeil, sort of shrieks in pain at the thought of it. So I guess that was the first spinal, but I don't know what a spinal is or was in 1972 or three. So, Well, yeah. apparently this medical procedure was something that William Friedkin had seen. And thought was fascinating. And he actually hired the crew from the hospital. Oh, my God. Participate in the scene. Oh, my God. So that it would be realistic. Apparently, medical professionals have commented on how realistic that scene is. And, of course, the scene is terrifying because it looks realistic. It looks like they're actually doing this to this poor girl. But one of the other reasons the scene is now so memorable One of the technicians in the scene, who was actually an employee at the hospital and was hired to do this so it would look realistic, turned out to be a murderer. His name was Paul Bateson, 
and he apparently killed a critic in New York City. The crime was very ghastly, and it received a lot of attention. And when William Friedkin heard about this, he decided to go visit Paul Bateson in prison and discuss this murder case with him. And then, of course, William Friedkin went on to make the movie Cruising, which was a film about the undercover cop trying to investigate a series of murders of men in the gay leather bar scene in New York. And that is apparently where Paul Bateson met his victim. And William Friedkin wanted to discuss this with him, and apparently he learned a lot and decided to go put that to use in the film Cruising, which did not do very well. At the time, in New York City, there was a series of murders known as the Bag Murders, where young men who were in the gay bar scene in New York City had apparently disappeared and then were found dismembered in plastic bags. And William Friedkin claimed that Paul Bateson actually talked to him about this. But it's incredibly interesting that the film that has fascinated and terrified so many people, including both of us, has this inextricable link to a real killer in Paul Bateson. But at the same time, a real serial killer, the Zodiac, commented on the film. Do you happen to know which orderly or tech he was in the movie? Like, what, did, was he the guy that says you're going to feel something cold and wet? Yes, yes. And all of that is apparently his improvised dialogue based on the way that he actually carried out that procedure. I, so that is the person that you, I'm talking about, the person who seems so calming and kind. And that he scene. does. And this is only just, the, you know, a mistake of having watched the same three seconds of film <laughs> eight billion times. You hyperanalyze things. I've always thought that reading was key to disarm you because his voice is so like bedside manner 101 that you're that much less prepared for what you're about to see. Mm -hmm. And I always assumed that was deliberate. I always assumed that that was like a, a way of getting your guard down because he sounds so friendly and he says it's really routine. He makes it sound like this is just going to be a routine procedure. And of course it's anything, but, but I didn't know that guy was going to go on to kill people. I had heard something about that, but for some reason not put all together like you just did. Yeah, that's just freaky. And one of the weirder things about it is that ever since this broke years ago, Paul Bateson is constantly referred to on the internet as a serial killer. <laughs> in fact, he was only convicted of killing one person yeah, in right. a crime which was not at all similar to the bag murders, really. The bag murders were victims who were chopped up and put in plastic bags and I think discarded in the river in New York. The murder that Paul Bateson was convicted of and that he apparently confessed to was the murder of a, another man he met in a bar, a critic in New York. The critic took Bateson to his home. They had sex, and then when the man asked him to leave, Bateson got very upset, and he beat and stabbed the man to death, and then took his money. So there's nothing similar about these crimes at all, except for the fact that the victims were gay. And it's interesting that the story that came out of it portrayed Bateson as a serial killer, and I wondered sometimes if that isn't because of his connection to the exorcist, that it isn't like, well, we need him to be more evil than he actually was <laughs> because he was in this movie. And and you said it was the critic's murder that inspired the cruising storyline? It didn't inspire it because apparently the movie Cruising was based on a novel which had already been written. Oh, okay. okay. But 
it inspired Friedkin to take on that project. And then he decided to take what he had learned from his conversations with Bateson and go and research the lifestyle of the gay leather bar scene in New York. And then he took what he learned and put it into the film Cruising, which, of course, was viciously attacked by members of the gay community for portraying homosexuals as violent and stereotypical. But the film is also very compelling, and the hunt for the murderer is extremely terrifying at times. By the by, it's called a carotid angiography, Mike. <laughs> okay. I don't know what's but it's the you. scene where they stick like this giant yes, needle yes, neck, I know. blood it's... spurting out of her neck. And, everything. and the blood is spurting at a heartbeat rhythm, which gives yeah. it an altogether eerie reality. And yeah. a lot of people it's consider like a... that to be the most disturbing scene in The Exorcist, which is ironic. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. It's probably the most disturbing. And in fact, in the New York Times review, the original one from Christmas Eve of 1973, Vincent Canby used that scene as sort of exhibit A for why he thought the movie was indulgently violent and graphic for graphic sake. He was mm. not a fan. <laughs> and that brings up an interesting point about the timing of all this, too. So The Exorcist came out in late 1973. Was it in December when it was released? Yeah, yeah. Premiered in New York Christmas Eve. The Zodiac Letter arrived in January of 1974, which is just about a month after the release of the film. And there was hysteria around the release of that film. There were people who had heart attacks in the theater. People threw up. They ran out of the theater. So apparently the Zodiac was paying attention to all this and saw the popularity. And I've often wondered if he didn't think in some way that it was all silly. There's all this hysteria about this fictional girl being possessed by this fictional demon when there's real horror going on in the world there was a suspected zodiac letter that referred to this film and then went on to say you know i want to see this note in my paper and if i don't see it i'm going to do something nasty which you know i'm capable of doing which is very telling why did the zodiac want to see his mini review of the exorcist in the newspaper <laughs> Why yeah, did he think it was a satirical comedy? My read of that was always that he was trying to get the kind of reaction like the 11-year-old or 10-year-old me <laughs> provided him with my response to that moment in the documentary. I, I think it was such a, a kind of, I don't know if it's blasphemous, but it was sort of a thumb in the eye of anybody who was upset by that film and to kind of um, you know belittle the emotional reaction that people were having by referring to it as a comedy just it was another way of sort of trying to point out how he was not of us he was his own being and he was not you know part of humanity and therefore to, to someone to to an elevated sort of superior being like himself the exorcist is a ridiculous comedy now that being said uh people without religious backgrounds people uh who maybe lack a little imagination or people who just don't like horror movies uh, will sit and laugh at The Exorcist. I've seen it, uh, you know, a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to not be friends with those people. I don't know if there's a, <laughs> a link uh, somehow to that. Yeah. But... The part of the movie where they explore the possible psychological and physical explanations for her behavior, 
that part of the film does offer some of the best lines, which I think you and I just the other day, you were sending me some emails where the title was uh, quoting lines from that scene. And my favorite one, when the psychiatrist says, do you have any religious beliefs? <laughs> I think I told you a while back that when my brother was attending theater school in New York, one of his instructors was one of those doctors from the film. No, I don't think you, or I forgot if you did tell me. You're kidding. Yeah. I want to say it was the, I should have asked my brother before we were doing this, but I want to say it was the guy who is saying, I'm talking to the person inside of Reagan now. <laughs> if you're here, you two are hypnotized. Yeah. <laughs> See how easily you can remember all these <laughs> well, That guy had to do like, he had to be attached to a, pretty groundbreaking contraption for the time to get that shot. That was a very unusual shot. And they basically had, he had to operate the camera himself in effect to yeah, get that yeah. shot. So it's a really, uh, I'd love to talk to that guy about that. That's fascinating. The one where he falls on the floor. It's yeah. Kind of like that psycho shot. Yeah. I actually met someone who was in the exorcist several years ago, two friends of mine, Scott and Laura Bullock, created and produced a horror convention in Colorado with a couple of their friends. And the MC of the event was Joe Bob Briggs, the <laughs> legendary television and horror host who is probably most famous for TNT's Monster Vision, but is now doing, I think, something on Shudder. And they invited me to come out and help out and to give a presentation on the Zodiac, which was interesting because that was for people who were there for the horror genre. So they were perceiving Zodiac in the context of being a masked slasher like Michael Myers and right, yeah. Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th. So that was a really interesting talk I gave and some really great responses to it. But when I showed up, I remember I got there the first day and Scott and Laura invited me into the convention center and we were chatting and Scott says, oh, by the way, this is Eileen. And I looked over and it was Eileen Dietz the woman who portrayed the Pazuzu demon in The Exorcist and was also a double, I believe, for Linda Blair playing the Reagan McNeil character. Wow. And she was very nice. She's also a tough and no-nonsense lady. She's very funny and she's very friendly and very helpful and supportive of these kinds of things. She loves her fans. And so I got to hang out with her a little bit at her table throughout the weekend and talk to her and get to know her a little bit. And I met her assistant, who coincidentally also apparently worked for Tom Savini, the legendary special effects and makeup artist known for his work in Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th. And she was selling some exorcist memorabilia, including the little Pazuzu dolls, which are just frightening to see sitting on a table. But she also sold a spinning Reagan McNeil head, which spews lines from the movie as it rotates around. Uh, <laughs> So she was there chatting with fans, and I was so excited about this that I ran over with my phone, and I typed a text to you yeah. that said, so I'm here hanging out with Eileen Dietz. A little while later, I checked, and I realized that the phone had auto-corrected that to read, I'm here hanging out with Eileen Dietz. <laughs> and somehow, you figured it out anyway, and you wrote back, and you were just stunned that I was actually talking to her. <laughs> Yeah, I knew exactly who you were talking about. Now, here's a question. Was she also the white face demon? 
it's pretty prominent in Karis's nightmare. That image keeps appearing and then it reprises later when he's looking at Reagan in bed and he makes the connection that it was sort of a, for a warning dream that he obviously didn't heed. But that face is now memeable. You know, you can send it mm-hmm. to your friends for their birthday. Do you know if she played that? I think so. Isn't that the picture that she signed for you that I sent to you? Oh, uh, you could be right. She had uh, autographed a photo for you, and I'm pretty sure it was of that face. And I'm pretty sure that she played that part, but she was also, as I said, Linda Blair's double in some shots. And I think it only ended up being like, you know, 10 or 20 seconds on the screen. But she played a pivotal role in that film. And according to her, she was on the set for months. So I wouldn't be surprised if she played a lot of different parts or did a lot of different bits. The most recent documentaries that they include with the reissues and so, you know, anniversary DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff does pretty right by her, I would say. The kind of talking head interviews, there's a whole section where she's discussed by multiple people as being a big part of it. And they show footage of the time on screen that's probably least interrupted by quick cutting is when she throws up on Karis. That's her. Mm-hmm. That's Eileen Deeds yeah. in the vomit shot. Yeah. And so that, you know, which is maybe the most, other than the crucifix, maybe the most famous scene. It's sort of like a three-way race between those two and the head. <laughs> but it's sort of like, you know, the two out of the three of them you would hear like on every other Johnny Carson model mm-hmm. for a while. So Eileen is not credited in the original Exorcist, along with Mercedes McCambridge and some of the other people who played some of the Reagan parts because the director and producer didn't want people to think that it was anyone but this little girl. So Eileen was kind of unrecognized for a while, but now she's considered one of the great screen queens. Isn't that funny? She continues to work quite a bit. I mean, back in the day, she did all kinds of things. She started out on stage in a Tony-winning play with Anthony Perkins from Psycho called Steam Bath. And then she went on to be in the TV sitcom Happy Days. Who the hell was she in Happy Days? I don't remember. I just remember seeing it on her credits. She was also in the Planet Yeah, she was also in the Planet of the Apes TV series. She was in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. But one of her other credits that a lot of people may not be aware of is that she was also in the TV miniseries Helter Skelter. And she's credited as Family Girl. I think that she was one of the girls shown sitting outside the courthouse with their heads shaved and the swastika carved into their forehead. Wow, that's weird. I I didn't know about any of that when it comes to her previous career. That's really something. If you look at her IMDb page, one of her upcoming projects is titled Charlie Lives, The Family's Return. (laughs) No way. (laughs) I have no idea what that's going to be about, but it sounds like it could be interesting. She also has written a book about her life titled Exercising My Demons, An Actress's Journey to the Exorcist and Beyond. Good for her. The popularity of the film The Exorcist demanded that there be a sequel, according to Hollywood rules, of course. And there was a hastily prepared, quickly produced sequel titled Exorcist to the Heretic, which was all about the continued story of the possessed girl, Reagan, trying to deal with the aftermath of the possession with the help of some pseudoscientists and a priest played by Richard Burton. 
no one who participated in the original had anything to do with the sequel beyond, I believe, Linda Blair and a few other people. And of course, William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin had nothing to do with it. The sequel was directed by John Borman, who also did, I believe, Excalibur. Is that correct? Well, more significantly, Deliverance. The film that he made was very different than the original. It was a very, I don't know what you would call it, uh, esoteric film that was nothing like the original. And that isn't what the public wanted, so the movie bombed at the box office. The financial failure of the sequel pretty much damned any attempts by William Peter Blatty to introduce his own sequel to the story. But later on, he decided to return to that story in a book titled Legion. The continued story of the detective from the original novel, Lieutenant William Kinderman, and how he starts to investigate a series of murders that are connected to this mental institution and a mysterious patient there. At some point, he begins to suspect that the crimes might be somehow connected to another series of crimes he had investigated years earlier, and those crimes were committed by someone known as the Gemini Killer. And that's where the Zodiac appears to have once again inspired pop culture. Unlike the real Zodiac, the Gemini carves an astrological sign onto his victims. He always doubles the letter L in his letters to the media. And he survives an execution in spirit form and ends up carrying out these murders with the help of others that he has possessed. The book Legion was then adapted into a film written and directed by William Peter Blatty himself, which was called The Exorcist Three. although originally it was going to be titled, I believe, Exorcist 1990, which is when the film was supposed to be released. The film took most of those aspects from the book, the murders, Lieutenant Kinderman, the Gemini killer, but the studio pointed out to William Peter Blatty at one point that the film is titled The Exorcist 1990, and there's no exorcism in it. <laughs> so they decided that he had to go back and reshoot some scenes to include this climactic exorcism. It was a drastic departure from the vision that Blatty had for that film. And some of those aspects were later criticized as being some of the worst of the film. Recently, there has been a DVD and Blu-ray release of what is called the director's cut of The Exorcist 3. No. Yes. For the listeners, I should make this clear. It is not a work print. It's not an original cut. It's not from some film canister that somebody found. They went and found some of the original screenplays. I believe they got them off eBay or something. And then they discovered this box full of VHS dailies that had never been used for anything. So they took the scenes that were originally intended to be in Blatty's version off of the VHS and inserted them into the regular cut of the film where they would belong. And of course, the ending is drastically different because there is no exorcism. And unlike the original film and book, Blatty seems to be exploring the horrific possibilities. What would happen if a detective like William Kinderman was actually confronted with a supernatural problem that could not be solved by traditional means? So the ending of the book is very different and it's very simple and final. Whereas the movie has this big, dramatic, climactic exorcism scene where the character William Kinderman, played by the great George C. Scott, delivers this great line about how 
he believes in scum and villainy and all these things, and he believes in the devil if that's what he wants. And Jason Miller gave a great performance, in my opinion, for you know what he had to do in that film. But the Gemini killer is portrayed by Brad Dourif, who was famous for his role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. And is also famous as the voice of Chucky, the murderous doll in the Child's Play films. And whose niece famously worked for me as an executive at the USA Network. I did not know that. Yes, she did. He is so frightening in that film that apparently it had a tremendous impact on a real-life serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, Mm. who loved The Exorcist 3 and apparently showed it to one of his almost victims. And he also was obsessed with the character of the Emperor in the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi films because he thought these were perfect representations of evil. It's interesting because Blatty based the Gemini killer loosely on the Zodiac. And once again, the art imitating life and life imitating art cycle of life seems to have taken hold here in pop culture. What do you think about the fact that all of these films, these real life crimes, they all seem to be influencing each other? The Exorcist is loosely based on a true story of a possession And then the serial killer Zodiac comments on that. And then the author writes a sequel about (laughs) just the meta nature of it all. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like someone inspired by Dirty Harry to go kill people would be life imitating art, imitating life in some weird way. And certainly the criticism of that series of films included people concerned that it was desensitizing people and making violence okay, and on and on. I remember we talked a lot about the case that inspired The Exorcist. And when you actually look into it, you know, I can see why people thought that this boy was possessed at the time. But if you actually look at the facts, you see that there's a lot of reasons to doubt that. I really believe that the issue in the novel, well, you know, what my joke is always is a live Rememorax from the old commercial. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, she, is she crazy or possessed? Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, but in the movie certainly is more conclusive about it. From what I understand about the background of the writing of the novel, the novel served in many respects as an opportunity for Blatty to move out of comedy in which he felt pigeonholed. He refers often to his own deeply religious Catholic upbringing as uh, having a lot to do with the source material, as well as, yeah, the case of that boy. It was a case that Blatty remembered reading about while he was a student at Georgetown, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why a lot of the movie is set there. And I agree, once you look into the case, you realize that Vladdy was unfortunately, you know, the victim of the kind of yellow journalism that was even more the norm then than it is today. I think it was the Washington Post that carried a front page story that literally says, the headline literally says something like, in devil's grip. Yeah, Yeah. it it was sort of just taken at face value that it must be the devil. And so, you know, if it's on, if it's in the Washington Post or, or it was, if, if it wasn't the Post, it was something, you know, of that level of, mm-hmm. of sort of uh, significance. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist, set out to write that book because he was trying to escape his comedy roots. And yet, immediately after the release of the film, newspapers gave front page coverage to a review from a serial killer who called Blatty's screenplay adaptation the best satirical comedy he had ever seen. You know, <laughs> I wonder how that made Blatty feel. Yeah. 
but I don't think most people know Blatty's comedy background. Didn't he write one of the early Pink Panther movies? Yeah, he was the screenwriter of A Shot in the Dark and, and a movie called The Night They Raided Minsky's, although I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a comedy. There are far better Blatty biographers than I, but I do know that he wrote it relatively quickly. And another of my favorite anecdotes about the writing of it was that he said that when he got to the height of the second act of the book, he just said, I just knew I had to think it was time for Reagan to demonstrate something that would persuade every single person reading the book that this absolutely was not just a medical problem. Mm-hmm. He said, I just remember pacing around thinking to myself, what is the worst thing I can possibly think of? <laughs> and for anybody who knows the book or the movie, you know the scene I'm talking about. Yes. And it's, just, it's funny that that was the product of someone literally saying to themselves, what is the worst thing I can possibly think of? <laughs> what it is, is, it, is it's associating sexuality and violence and blood and all of the profane, inhumane ideas and things with Christ. Mm -hmm. And the blasphemy of that and the shock value of that was what I think Vladdy was talking about. And I think it was trying to be explicit and direct and overt in a way that would sully and disrespect that which is holy. It would be Mm -hmm. sacrilegious. And, And then Freakin, you know, he was a very, very competitive guy, uh, just industrially speaking. He was very concerned with the sort of uh, success meter of his contemporaries. And after French Connection, there was the Godfather and there was, you know, a lot of competition and he wanted to hit and he wanted something as loud and aggressive as he could get his hands on that would keep him in what he felt was, you know, the the lead pack and and for a number of years it was very much the case and so he took he was opportunistic in his selection of that piece of material and he developed the screenplay with the author it wasn't a script when he got involved it was the novel that got his attention the original vincent canby review in the new york times one of the things he says is william peter blatty who produced the film and adapted his best-selling novel for the screen has succeeded in leaving out very few of the kind of ridiculous details that I suspect would have earned a less expensive, more skeptical film, an X rating, instead of the R rating that mysteriously has been achieved. In those days, a movie like The Exorcist, that was going to be, at the time, distributed to a record number of screens, that was being made by one of a whopping five major motion picture distributors, which is to say, you know, they owned a fifth of the marketplace. And the movie was based on an already hit best-selling novel. So you're talking about a whole other category of rules. So if we've learned anything from this conversation, it's that the Zodiac has had a tremendous influence on pop culture. And he was inspired by a lot of things, but he's gone on to inspire others. Here we are 50 years later, There's movies and television shows, podcasts and books. So obviously, something that you and I were interested in years ago and was kind of an odd interest is no longer an odd interest. It's something that's embraced by popular culture. What do you think about the way that Zodiac continues to be so pervasive decades after he disappeared? I think that for the same reason why I was so traumatized watching that early documentary from the end of the 70s, 
you're afraid of being shot in a dark alley, we got that. If you're afraid of being uh, you know, stabbed to death, we got that. If the idea of mocking social norms and uh, breaching boundaries and, you know, you're talking about mocking the police, you're talking about threatening the school children, the sort of upheaval of the social order, we've got that. And then finally, if you want to talk about how justice doesn't win in the end and mm-hmm. the good guys don't always solve the case and sometimes the bad guys get away with it. And then if some tiny part of you wants to imagine that someone who does something terrible and gets away with it has remorse or feels badly or perhaps doesn't hurt other people because the experience was traumatizing for them too. No, he robs that from you too. He makes Mm -hmm. sure you know that he doesn't feel that way. He makes sure you know that he takes nothing but pleasure and joy at all this misery and tragedy Mm -hmm. and that that's part of what makes him who he is. So it seems Mm -hmm. to have everything For anybody who wants to indulge in that dark place where we allow ourselves to sort of immerse in the hopeless and, uh, you know, try to claw our way back out of it, whatever that challenge is that we perpetrate on ourselves, this subject seems to be really worthy tool or vehicle. Certainly it's it's something I continue to return to inexplicably and just do deep dives on as if there's anything left to discover or learn or contribute or ask. And every time I think the answer is no, and every time I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 50 years later, I hope that we do get some answers. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Indeed, sir. Thanks for doing the show, Dave. I really appreciate it. It was great having you on. My pleasure. It was a joy and an honor, and you're awesome at this, sir. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you were pretty good yourself. Of course, naturally. Just what we expected. (laughs) All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Zodiac A to Z. Written and produced by Michael Butterfield. Featuring writer and producer. David Icke Zodiac Voice by John Knight Zodiac A to Z Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com